like the Air Force captain, who's a fighter pilot, like you, who's an orthodontist in the Navy, mm-hmm. a very specialized career. How does the the military allow you to balance the time demands to prepare and compete? Well, what I would tell you is um, you get really good at managing your time. I wake up at 4, 4.30 in the morning so I can get a workout in. And, you know, some of the things I do take leave for some of them, I, that's, that's what I do. People may take leave to go to their kid's soccer game. I take leave to do an appearance or to juggle things and you pick and choose, you know, you, you can do it all. You just can't do it all at once. And so for me, you know, when I was in residency, I really didn't compete in pageants, except I did what I found a way was to do my dissertation with pageant women. And I looked at the system, Miss Texas, that I was able to compete on a holiday weekend. And again, you know, the three big things, and and I got to shout out to Kelly Sabracci on this because she is spot on this, is that you have to have great job performance, hands down. You are a Naval officer first or an Air Force officer, fill in the blank first. Secondly, you have to show good communication with your command. So that way they know exactly what's going on. It's always better to over communicate than under communicate. And then three, you know, having a plan in place. We all get the same 24 hours a day, but anyone who I meet who is able to do the things that they want to do is very structured in their day and they're they're very intentional about their day. And so it's really finding ways to put things in your life that are going to help you succeed and taking out the things that don't. And that's something that I've really um, sought after doing and asking for help and keep asking for it until you get it. Hey, everybody. I'm joined this time by Dr. Corinne Devon. Corinne's an active duty U.S. Navy commander. She's a dentist who specializes in orthodontics. She's a beauty pageant contestant and winner. She's the author of the book Commander to Crown, and she's a public speaker. She does quite a bit. She's 17 years into her Navy career. She deployed to Iraq as part of Operation Iraqi Freedom and she's been stationed in Italy and Japan. She's currently the USOA Miss California. And for those not watching the video, she's wearing the sash, but I didn't have her put the crown on. It was in a box right off camera. Also, being that she's active military, I have to give this admonition. The views and opinions presented herein are those of Corinne Devon and do not necessarily represent the views of the DOD or its components. Appearance of or reference to any commercial products or services does not constitute DOD endorsement of those products or services. The appearance of external hyperlinks does not constitute DOD endorsement of the linked websites or the information, products, or services therein. Corinne offers a unique perspective on balancing an active duty career and a lot of personal activities, including beauty pageants. So let's get into it. Here's episode 128 with Corinne Devon. Let's talk about you as a young child. Where where were you born and where did you grow up? I was born in Subic Bay um, on a U.S. Naval base in the Philippines, and I grew up in the military on Navy bases, just like the ones I serve on throughout my entire childhood. So we were in Huntington Beach, 
My dad was stationed at Long Beach Hospital. We were in the Philippines. We grew up in um, Kaneohe Bay Marine War Base, Marine Corps Base, Hawaii. And then we finished at Rough and Ready in Stockton where my dad made the decision to retire. And I was just finishing up up middle school. My brother was finishing up elementary school. Looking back on it, for you as a young kid, what was it like being a young, young child on a military base? I have these distinct memories, especially being with the Marines, where I'd be walking down a street and all of a sudden I feel like I would be looking up and about ready to fall down because they would look down on me, but almost like leaning on top of me. And I also remember the time during Operation Desert Storm. I was very, very young when all of the parents left the base. You know, one of the spouses left and it became really quiet. And I remember spending more time with my friends so that our parents could spend time together. I didn't quite understand it since I was about seven or eight years old that time, but I realized that bonds that we had, especially, you know, even though Hawaii is not considered overseas in some ways it is, was so crucial and so beneficial because I learned that that really was the glue that kept us together, not knowing when or if our either moms or dads would return home. Mom and dad active or just dad? Uh, Dad was active duty. My mom was actually a civil servant. So she was a government employee for uh, the Navy. And that's actually how they met. She was a dental assistant. My dad was a dental officer. So, yeah. The, and we'll get to your book eventually, Commander to Crown. In there, one of the cool aspects is you've got a lineage of family that have served in the military How far back does it go? It goes back all the way to the Revolutionary War. And I didn't know that until I was in college and applying for the Daughters of American Revolution. And that's actually one of the requirements to get the scholarship is you have to show that you have family to serve back. And so currently, as far as active duty serving, my cousin is a warrant officer for the U.S. Army Reserves based at Alaska. My other cousin, Brittany, she and I are the only females that have served. She is actually uh, the executive officer of her unit in Stuttgart, Germany. She's actually moving back to the States here as we speak. And then myself, um, I'm active duty Navy. And then my brother is reserves in the U.S. Navy up in the Seattle greater area. So you could say that we um, are a military family through and through. And whether or not us us kids don't like it, we uh, end up drinking the Kool-Aid one way or another. That's where I was going to go with this next. So being that there was such a long heritage in your family, was it pushed on you was serving in the military something that as a young girl to or even to your brother that was pushed never never once um i think that for us we had certain stages in our life certain crossroads that happened to us that it became an option that we were thinking huh never thought about that but actually might be a good thing to explore for me it was getting my cost of education paid for most of my colleagues uh who are orthodontist or any other specialist in the dental or medical field have student loans anywhere from 300,000 to a million. And that's very common and expected. And to know that I wouldn't have to have that kind of debt was really appealing to me. And that also a lot of my professors I had in dental school, this faculty that I had, the one common thread that I I noticed among them that I always admired was that they had served in the military, regardless of the branch, regardless of the capacity. At one point they did service, whether they were a dentist or not. And I wanted to have that same um, courage and that same intent with my professional career. On the flip side, though, growing up on military bases, does it limit the extracurricular activities that you can do as a kid, like getting involved in sports and a lot of the school functions? You know, it would be easy to think that. And in some ways, I think what it it did is that my parents 
really chose an activity that they knew we could get at every base. So my brother did Boy Scouts, I did Girl Scouts. So they knew that even though we wouldn't have the same troop of guys or gals, we could still have that with us wherever we went. And it was definitely something that my parents worked hard ensuring we would have. You're right. The same team that I would play tennis in high school is not the same team. Maybe I played tennis as a little girl. But the skills and the people that we, you know, the people that we developed along the way, I think were still ingrained to us no matter where we moved or wherever my father's job took us. And you talk about it in your book. So when did you make the transition? When did your dad retire and you make the transition to going to public school? So we made the transition in 1994. My dad retired in November of 94. And then I started uh, public high school in August of, of 95 at Galena in Reno, Nevada. And so that was really, I would say when we were fully out of the military, my dad was in private practice. Sometimes on these military bases, I went to school on the bases or school off the base. It really just depend on the era and where we were stationed. Um, but that was definitely where, okay, we're out of the military. My dad's retired and something interesting. I, I can't remember if I put this in the book or not, but my dad was actually, we called it back to um, active duty service in when 9-11 happened. They needed him come to New York and to identify all of the bodies because um, he has forensic dentistry in his background. But at the time he had a business where he would have had to put 20 employees salaries on hold. My mom was battling breast cancer. And so because of that, he was able to, you know, asked if he could pause that and wait another year or two and see if they still needed him. Was that something he was asked because he was prior military in the sense that the government wants their own doing the identifications? You know, great question. Something that I learned from this is that there is uh, somewhere in our contracts where say that they can recall us back at any time, whether you're separate or retired. So um, that was something that we just have to accept that when you raise your right hand, you may think it's for four years, but in reality, you're raising your hand for the possibility of going back into the service at really any point in your life that you're capable and willing to do so. And for you, because your dad was a dentist, that didn't initially push you towards dentistry yourself. What were you thinking you were going to do as an adult? Gosh, I had so many ideas, Paul. I thought I was going to go into optometry, public relations. I never dreamed that I was going to go into dentistry. And, you know, if you told my eight-year-old self who was on a swing set in Hawaii that, oh, you're going to go to the same part of the world, the Middle East, and do the exact same thing your father was doing, I would have said, you're crazy. But 20 years later, guess what I was doing? That exact same thing. So it's funny how... Uh, Life has a funny way of surprising you like that. So coming out of high school, what was your plan? Because you, you ended up going to college. Yes, I went straight to college, um, a small private school called St. Mary's. It's in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I thought I wanted to go into medicine. So I was a health science major, biology major, but I was failing miserably in all my classes. I mean, you go in in a group of brothers and priests and they say, not even God gets an A. And they sincerely mean it. So they actually really do mean it, which you realize very quickly, you need those A's to get into medical school or dental school. And so I started taking a really hard look thinking, I'm like, okay, is it the material? Is it the job? Like what's going on here? And I was also battling a little bit of test anxiety, not sure how to study. And so what I ended up ultimately doing is I took summer school and retook the classes that I need to get into dental school, but I changed my major to communications. I really enjoyed what I was learning there. And I thought, you know, one day when all my education is said and done for it, no one's going to ask me to recite the periodic table of elements. No one's going to ask me to do a physics experiment. 
what they're going to care about is, did I take care of them? Did I dress their needs? Did I get them out of pain? And more importantly, how did I make them feel in the chair? And to me, communication is such a big part of that and such a missed thing that I think our industry needs and is craving for. Seems like a an unnatural progression from communications <laughs> to, to the medical field. I, I don't think you're probably in a, a large group of dentists who made that route. No, a lot of them are biology or chemistry majors or zoology majors or biochem majors. And, you know, I have so much respect for them because I only took what I needed. But that's the beauty of college. You should be studying something that you're excited about, something that's going to make you wake up and do 10 hour, 12 hour study days. And also is something that you're going to want to take with you because that passion, that charisma is going to come out in no matter what career you choose. And so to me, how is medicine or dentistry any different? We're taking care of people. We're in a customer service industry. So for me, it just made sense. When you were looking at colleges, did the the military academies never kind of even hit your radar? Nope, never once. <laughs> I, I didn't apply for the military scholarship until I was over halfway through college until my last year. So to me, it, you know, I have a lot of respect for my friends who've gone that route. My cousin went to the Naval Academy. Several of my good friends have gone that route. But for me, it, you know, when you go to the academy, especially the Naval Academy, they're really looking to put you in very specific fields when you leave. Surface warfare officer, pilot seal, different careers that just wasn't as appealing to me. I knew I wanted to be, I, I wanted to go into the medical and dental industry. And so for me, you know, the scholarship that I got, the health profession scholarship program made more sense to pay for dental school and have that be a route to go in. In case your audience doesn't know, um, and this is true in the Army, Air Force, and Navy, we have what's called staff corps and line corps. So your staff corps is going to be your nurses, your dentists, your physicians, um, your pharmacists. Um, they're in different groups, whether it's dental, medical, medical service corps, nurses, etc. You know, we're more hired on for our brains, you could say, and our skill set than a line officer, which my cousin is, which is kind of like the jack of all trades. You're the pilot. You're the surface warfare officer. So even though we both have a mission and we both are in the military and proud to serve, our day-to-day operations are so different. And I think that's really important for anyone who's looking to go into the service or understand what, you know, serving the military looks like. And I like the the direction you're taking with that, because if in case somebody's listening, who's considering the medical field in the military, mm-hmm. am I understanding correctly that it, had you opted for one of the military academies, you you may have not been guaranteed to be able to go into the medical and or dental field? Correct. So one route that I've seen people do, but I don't hear it very often, is there's called Uniform Services University, which I'm actually applying for faculty appointment right now. And how that works is that after you graduate from college, you can go to this medical medical school. And again, it's just medical. There is no dental school. There's dental postgraduate programs, but not an actual dental school. And the medical school is based in Bethesda, Maryland. And when you do that, you're accruing more time that you owe the military. So whenever you go to a military academy, you're going to owe them four years. You go to a military medical school, you're going to owe them four years. Now, when you go into a residency program like I did, it counts concurrently rather than consecutively because you're actually taking care of military patients. And that's an important distinction. And, you know, for me, I wanted the college experience. I went to a small private school. I didn't have a car. I didn't have a cell phone. So I definitely was paying my dues in some regards. But um, to me, it just made sense. And I I would tell people there's many ways you can come in the service. This is just the way that I chose that made sense for me. You mentioned no car, no cell phone. So what year did you graduate high school? I graduated in 99. And with your dad being a dentist and you, you mentioned that he wasn't pressuring you for the military. Was your mom and dad pressuring you towards dental work or was that something that was always there for you 
you just kind of took a different path by going the communications route. The latter, the latter. Um, I knew that I always enjoyed working with my dad in the summer. I always loved doing the health fairs. I always loved working at his office, but I wasn't quite sure if it was my dad or the industry. So I purposely worked with other dentists. And when I worked with a pediatric dentist, it was just like the clouds moved away. The sun was shining through and I was like, wow, I love this. I'm not, you know, drilling in someone's mouth or doing a root canal for four hours. Like it's more education. It's more about relationship based. It's, it's just was a different approach. And that's really what hit the spark and the fire for me to move towards dental school. And then the scholarships were just something that I really wanted to utilize because my parents said were gracious enough to pay for college, but for dental school, it just financially was just too much. And you had a pivotal moment in dealing with a young child during some volunteer time before you actually were in dental school. That's right. That's in your book, but can you tell that story? Sure, I'd be delighted to. Um, So where I went to high school is Reno, Nevada, and you don't think of it as some war-torn country, but like every city in America, we have our areas that are doing very well off, very affluent, and others that are very impoverished. And what Washoe County does is the areas that have the most reduced or free lunches are areas that we know we could be Give the most benefit. So the Northern Nevada Dental Society has a mobile van where with parents' consent, we invite second graders to come in and see us for an exams, cleaning, sealants, things that don't require any anesthesia, things that are very preventative and helpful. And one of the times I did this with my dad, I remember this little girl walking and she was eight years old. And the reason I'm telling you this age is so important is that six is when most children get their first adult teeth, teeth they should have the rest of their life. And they're starting to get some of their other adult teeth in the front, their incisors that you see so um, easily. And when she walked in, she was very nervous. She was very trembling. And when she finally sat in the chair and we got her calmed down and she opened her mouth, my dad motioned me over and I was shocked that her first permanent molars were rotted down to the bone. And I just thought, this is something that's 100% preventable. To know that she was taking an aspirin every night, to know that her parents couldn't afford something that could be prevented and, and get her out of pain was when I knew I didn't want to see this anymore, not on my watch. And so that's when I said, all right, I'm going to go to dental school. And the reason I want to go to dental school is I could have gone into the public, you know, nonprofit or other charity sector where I could be an advocate and speak. But I know that my credibility um, and more doors would be open for me if I was a dentist. And so that's why I chose going that route. And you got immediate support from your college for dental school. They said, for sure, <laughs> you're going to be able to get into dental school. Oh, no, not at all. Gosh, um, I'm so glad I never believed that woman. Yeah, imagine walking into a career counselor and having this aha moment like, I want to go to dental school. And they just, you put down their coffee and they say, no way in hell. Yeah, that's basically what I got told, which was shocking to me because um, as she started rightfully spelling off the facts to me, no one in our school's gotten in four years. And why do you think you can do it, Corinne? Like, you should be focused focusing on getting married because that was what a lot of women in my school did, which again, there's nothing wrong with that. I, you know, I, I'm not trying to knock that down, but you know, in a place, you know, you, you are worthy to have every dream that you want and you're worthy to have every goal. It's going to be dependent on you and how hard you're willing to work for it. And I was willing to put in blood, sweat and tears for this. So that's what I did. And, uh, yeah, it's, it seemed to be a constant thing in my life. When someone tells me I can't do something, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to find a way. And if I can't find a way then I'm going to leave a trail. So that's what I decided to do. And so after graduation with your communications degree, you went off to UNLV for dental school, correct? That is correct. When did the bridge happen to where you went, okay, I want to go to dental school, but also I'm going to reach out to the military and get their assistance and thus serve in the military? 
So in um, for applying for dental school or medical school or any grad program, you have to kind of do it in your sort of your in your middle of your junior year, just like it's the same thing for high school to college. And when I was starting to look at dental schools and my dad and I had did a visit to Creighton and UNLV and realizing the cost of it, that's when I started exploring, you know, alternative ways to get it paid for. And that's when I learned about the scholarships that the Army, the Air Force and Navy offered, which are virtually the same. There is a couple differences between that. And if anyone in your audience is interested, um, I actually have sat on the board selecting people and I've also interviewed people. That's what I'm doing right now. They don't let you do both at the same time because of conflict of interest. Um, but it's something that I have experience in that I can let you know what will help your application shine over others. And that is what I did. That's when I looked into it. Now, with the Navy and the rules have changed a little bit over the years. Um, I was waiting for my acceptance letter. I was on the wait list for both Creighton and UNLV and I got accepted on April, I remember. And so I got a three-year scholarship. I just missed the cutoff for the four-year scholarship for dental school, so. And where I wanna go with this, and you, you've kind of hit on it already, and you talk about it in your book, but for those who really don't understand the process. So first off, do you have to pick a branch when you're, going through that application process or is it is it a general application to potentially all of the branches? I wish it was the latter, but nope, you have to put in an application with every single one. So the Air Force lost mine twice and the Navy seemed to have it. And you know what? Thank goodness. I'm so happy to be in the Navy. Don't get me wrong. There's a few duty stations. I'm very jealous of my Air Force colleagues, but they're very far and few in between. And virtually our job is very similar. And what our, it is pretty much the same what we do day to day. We just wear different uniforms and our rank structure. We just have different names for it, but we have very, very similar callings. And I would tell you the culture in each of the services, they definitely have some nuances and uniqueness to them. But at the same time, um, I went to a tri-service program for an Army, Air Force, and Navy for orthodontics. And um, I think I think that's when we realized what securing the building meant differently between us three because we would run into, we would run our heads into different walls and realize that we were just not communicating even though we were speaking English. So it's not an ROTC program. No, sir. So can you explain the the applic you you mentioned that you can mentor or advise somebody going through the process, mm -hmm. but just in brief. What is the process of the application? I, I believe you in your book, you talk about you had to write a, a basically a thesis to s describe yourself and why you want to be why you should be accepted. Am I? A yeah. So you're touching on. So you have to do a personal statement. You have to submit your grade, your um, so for dental school, it's called a DAT, dental admissions test. You need to have a few letters of recommendation, um, a CV or a resume. And that is compiled together into a package that is sent to different people to interview you. So that's what I'm doing right now is I'm interviewing different people. And then I do an appraisal sheet as well as someone else. And that entire get package gets sent to a professional military review board. And based off that, they have a quota of how many people they can accept. Now there is a certain um, scoring system that's there. So if someone has a certain grade level above a certain, you know, 3.5 or 3.8, they get so many points. Same thing with their entrance test. But then there's definitely some subjectivity on, you know, the letters of recommendation. Um, I was very fortunate with my father serving that there were still some people he knew that were still active duty and having them write my letters of recommendation. I know help because let's be honest, the military is a is, is a big, is all about networking. Network. Yeah. And it's all who, you know, and having someone who has an excellent reputation in the Navy dental Corps, and I'm applying to go in the Navy dental Corps, I feel was very helpful in my application, just as is, it's very impressive that you have someone who's very high ranking. That's very well regarded and well received. And 
after that, that's when they'll notify you of which scholarship you've got. So they have them in two, three, and four-year increments. And the Navy is the only service, to, uh, to my knowledge, it offers what's called an HPCP. So that's Health Profession Collegiate Program. And the difference between that one is instead of you getting scholarship money, they pay you a salary. I believe it's either E5 or E6 and give you a housing allowance. And so your family, if this worked really great for some of my colleagues who already had families, to already get health care benefits, get, you know, certain things in place, and you're actually accruing time in school towards retirement. So for some of them, maybe they were in an area where the cost of living wasn't so expensive or the resources were limited. That made more sense. And so, again, they were still accruing debt from school, but at the same time, they were getting paid a salary. Where I wasn't getting a salary, I got a, I got a monthly stipend, and that was it. But unlike an ROTC program, is there any commitment to the military while you're going through the program or does everything start upon graduation? It's up to you. Um, I chose to go to officer indoctrination school halfway through dental school. So I saw an opportunity to do it because I didn't want to have to do it right after graduation. And I'm glad I did. I had some colleagues who did it right before they started dental school. Um, but, But you're right. Majority of them do it after graduation. And I wanted to make sure that I had successfully passed all my boards, that I had my dental license. Um, We are required to have a license um, to practice in the military, can be any state. And so for some of my colleagues who maybe, you know, one of the exams just didn't go quite right, or maybe they had a patient that didn't meet the requirements, they had to take vacation time and spend extra, you know, money out of of their own pockets to get that taken care of. And I just wanted to kind of have a a contingency plan in place before that. And so because of that, I didn't have to report, I didn't report into the military till late June versus the day after I graduated. And so your, let's say your first day active military is when? June 28th, 2007. And what was that transition like for you? It was, um, it was definitely an awe-inspiring moment. So be, I was reported down to Naval Base San Diego and it's the same building my dad actually had practice in. And so I remember meeting my boss, Captain, he's now a Captain Joseph Molinero, who's retiring this year. And I remember walking him, meeting him, and then proceeding to tell him that I won Miss Nevada. And I was wondering if I could take off in a couple of weeks to go compete for Miss United <laughs> States. And he actually loved it. He's like, absolutely. He's like, you came here early. The program is not going to really go into full effect for another month and a half. He's like, one of my colleagues was a former Miss Marilyn. And he's like, I was always so impressed by her decorum, the ability for how well she spoke and, um, and so that's really what my first few weeks in the military were like. And I'm really grateful. He's still a mentor of mine and he's someone I'm always impressed by how much he remembers and how much he cares. I really wish he wasn't retiring, but he's at 30 years and they won't let him stay any longer <laughs> in the Navy. And you're at the 17 year mark coming up on the 17 year mark yourself. Yes. Going in, were you thinking in career? No, not at all. Not at all. I, you know, everyone says you're you're going to know when you're ready to get out. And I thought I knew I was ready to get out um, a couple points in my career, but then life threw me a curveball. Um, one of the curveballs was that I had a health scare where I had some precancerous scales, cells that were discovered in me. And that really kind of made me take a step back and reevaluate things because I was very grateful for the care I received. Um, and another was I was looking to work in private practice and I just wasn't finding the jobs and the, and the fulfillment that I was hoping to find and, and the hours I needed. And before I could turn in my separation, for the Navy, they asked us to do it nine to 12 months in advance. I got served orders to go to Italy. And uh, then I went on probably one of my best tours of my entire career. So yeah, it's funny how life surprises you like that. 
Italy, I would imagine, could make a lot of people change their mind about staying in the military. You would think, but I was actually replacing someone who was leaving 13 months earlier. Again, it wasn't something that was on the radar. I wasn't supposed to move. This person wasn't supposed to move, but I'm in a very small, small community and the opportunity to go when I was so torn on what to do, I asked a lot of my mentors, both in the military, out of the military. And the one thing was constant. We would trade spots with you in a second, like go, like practicing back here in the U.S. will always be here waiting for you. And I'm so glad I trusted their advice because it was, it was amazing. And in your book, you talk about getting deployed to the Middle East. Yes. What's it like doing dental work in a combat zone? Oh my gosh. It's well, it's very austere and you prescribe a lot of antibiotics. Like it's candy. Like you give like everyone penicillin because you're just so worried because you know, the idea of being clean is just so far removed because you just hit your pants and like you just see sand go up in the air. Um, I, I definitely learned a lot. I learned that you had to be very resourceful and very innovative. So I remember at one point having to do a root canal with a paperclip. That was pretty challenging. I, I was grateful for that suggestion from one of my colleagues because we didn't have the files to do the root canal. I remember saving a Marine's front tooth um, with fishing string, just bracing it together. And then um, probably another interesting case was the oral surgeon who was over there and he was in charge of the whole Providence. Uh, he's now separated from the military, Mark Ransart. He's wonderful. He, I remember him waking me up in the middle of the night, asking me to come to the um, the clinic because it was a uh, it was army was transitioning over in Al-Assad when I was there and they called it the cash. That's the combat support hospital. And I guess there was some sort of altercation where one of the Marines there had broke his jaw. And he's like, Corinne, if you're going to be an orthodontist, you need to know how to wire. You need to know how to wire teeth to a jaw. And so the, obviously this Marine is sedated because this would be very uncomfortable and very <laughs> for anyone, anyone, regardless of your pain tolerance. And that's where I actually wired my first case um, as a general dentist. I learned a lot. I saw a lot. I think one of the things that I definitely learned in the book is the how fact that women are treated so differently, even women of ranking status um, or, you know, education superiority in a country where women are just never regarded that way. Even our translator that we had, she was a lawyer in Baghdad, but she got paid much more from our government to translate than to actually be a lawyer, which was shocking to me um, in their own country. So definitely a place where I learned a lot, grew a lot, and was very grateful to be an American. We have a lot of things that we take for granted here in the United States. And you mentioned orthodontist. So when you first went in, you were doing general dentistry. Yes, sir. The the path to orthodontia, how'd that happen? And was that something you wanted or was it recommended to you? Um, it was a little bit of both. I So if you Fast track back to when I was in dental school, I actually applied for pediatrics residency and I got um, an early admission to one of the programs. And while I was in dental school as an HPSP recipient, so again, this is the scholarship that I'm under, I belonged to one person in Bethesda, this Navy captain who was in charge of us. And so I told him what I was looking to do and he said it was fine. What I didn't understand quite yet that I now understand being the military is that you have maybe one person in charge who says it's fine, but then a new person comes in and they will tell you it's not fine. And they may not always honor the previous person's wishes. And that's what happened to me was that I got in, I emailed the now the new person in charge and they say, you can't go. And it that's something that's hard. It was very, very hard for me to swallow. But I ended up doing a one-year um, advanced education general dentistry. And I also did a couple of clerkships um, down here in San Diego while I was in Vegas. And when I was doing the clerkships, I walked over to the orthodontics area because I knew there was a lot of overlap with pediatrics. 
And the orthodontist there said I had the personality of an orthodontist. And I kept scratching my head thinking, what is the personality of an orthodontist? I've, I've never had braces. Um, the people in my dental school that want to be orthodontists, they're the gunners of the class. They're the people that are obsessed with getting A's. Like they'll do, I mean, short of selling their soul. I mean, some of them, this is what they're going to do. I'm like, that's not me. And um, during my AGD program, again, I was told that again. And what really lured me in was I was working with a group of oral surgeons and I saw a patient who had been in braces for like four or five years, but was clearly like, I'm thinking, how is braces going to correct that bite she has? Like, I feel like you need surgery. And the fact I recognized it, put it together and send it over. That's when I realized that I wanted to be part of that. I really wanted to be able to fool the gene pool, to offer a service to our men and women that normally would not be able to afford this and work with a team of surgeons. And that's what's beautiful. And it's what I'm doing right now. I, I've been away from the oral surgery community for six years. And now I that is what solely my practice is now in San Diego. It's only surgery orthodontics that I get to do uh, with a residency program, an amazing talented group of oral surgeons and I might work it on a colleagues to say yes to patients who were in previously have always been told no throughout their entire career because there wasn't the services or the people in place to do so. But here in San Diego, we get to say yes, and it's pretty awesome. And where I want to go with this is I didn't realize this until I started doing the research. Getting into the orthodontics program is grueling, and it's quite a process to be selected. And there's a very few number of you across the entire military, correct? Correct. So in the Navy, there's 14 out of us. I believe the Air Force has got about 28 and Army's about 30 or 32. So we're, there's not very many of us. So when we all get together, it's very, very nice, and, but it's also rare. Just to pause you for a second, in relation to general dentistry, what are the how do the numbers compare in the military? Like for the Navy? Like the Navy, there's like 600 general dentists versus 14 of us. Yeah, uh, myself... The pediatric dentist is about 13. Some of the other community, there's a couple other communities, I think oral facial pain, radiology. But yeah, when you are part of a specialty that does not equate to readiness and readiness is the ability to go out back to battle, to put a gum and gun in someone's hand or be able to drive a tank or drive a ship, then you're kind of moved further down on the list. And so where our mission is mainly is overseas, is supporting, you know, the active duty, but mainly their family members that are there with them. And then stateside, my goal mainly is to support my oral surgeons and making sure they get the cases they need for skill sustainment. So that way, if they're in a situation where someone does get a job broken or something happens, they've now had a perfect training environment or scenario to know how to handle some of those unpredictable things they could see down the road. And once you were selected, though, for orthodontics, doesn't that also limit your duty stations? Yeah, it sure does. I went from so many, so many down to seven. And when I'm up for orders, I only get offered maybe one or two. <laughs> and sometimes I don't even get a choice even then. Um, I I've get sometimes gotten a notice to leave um, a duty station with only two weeks. Um, this last set of orders that I got was actually the longest I've always, I got in advance. So I got them in August to leave the following May, which is unheard of, but um, I think it was partially because I did back-to-back overseas tours and I was asked to extend because unfortunately we're undermanned. Our community is actually about 85% right now. So there's a lot of gaps that we have across um, across the world in my community and the need is growing. So it's just one of those areas that um, hopefully we'll get more people in the future. And because of that limited duty stations, and you talk about it in your book, you've basically bounced between Italy and Japan for the majority of your career? Uh, Italy just once. Okay. Uh, Japan, I've done twice. So Japan, I just finished two tours in Japan. And then I'm on my second tour in San Diego. 
Yes, but I've moved um, quite a bit. So um, in case anyone wants to know where Navy Orthodontists are, we're in San Antonio, Texas. That's where our residency program is. In fact, that's probably where your best chance of getting braces is because as, between the residents and the faculty is as many people as there is in the Navy in the entire world. So your best chance are there. Um, and then we're in San Diego, Camp Lejeune, Norfolk, um, Bethesda, Annapolis, and then overseas, Italy, Spain, Japan. And that's it. Um, our, our Army and Air Force colleagues have a little bit different splattering because we're usually near the coast, but that's basically where you can find us. So unfortunately, we can't say yes to everyone. I always tell people getting into the Navy orthodontics as a patient is like winning the lottery, but I'm always happy to, you know, look at anyone, evaluate anyone and give them the resources or ideas what to do if I was in their shoes. And you talk about this in the book also. You were stationed both Japan and Italy during covid Yes. What was that experience like for you? Because you were living off base. Yes, I was. So I was in Italy. I was stationed in Sicily when the uh, when COVID-19 actually happened. And I remember it was like a bomb went off, except you, you didn't hear anything. And there was what was really hard was that I was watching the fabric of a nation unravel before me. Here you have a culture of people that thrive off of you know, being around each other, being able to hug each other, you know, share long meals together. And that just came to a screeching halt. I wouldn't hear church bells and I wouldn't hear children in the streets anymore and said they would be replaced with sirens and police cars and the cabinet. And living off base, it was really hard to watch. And I was very fortunate that I was still getting paid to go in. But even the, the few times a week I could go in, I would get pulled over by the Italian polizia and I would have to explain in my broken Italian, what I was doing, why I was doing it, so I would not be fined or taken to jail. And that piece of paperwork that was so crucial, I hold on, would change every week, if not daily. So it was very, very challenging to be in. Um, and then navigating that with a move from Italy to Japan was also another whirlwind because Japan and Italy are both beautiful countries, but they could be not more opposite in how they handle business, the type of way they do things. So Upon moving to Italy's very structured, Japan's very <laughs> laid back. We'll get to it when yeah, we get to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So not at all. Um, you know, it's funny in Italy, the quarantine was, hey, you're going to be in a hotel room, but if you need to go outside and get some fresh air, you can just don't talk to anyone. You know, maybe you need to walk your dog. That's fine. Japan, I was locked in a hotel room, basically told if I left, even to go down the hallway to do a load of laundry that I would have been, you know, taken to mass. Um I would have food dropped off occasionally. I would have, I would be checked. And it was just, it was such a different mindset. And for the most part, the only way that I was able to, I wasn't able to leave the country for a year. And the only way I could get in and out of the country after fall of 2021 was on a military plane. So we could leave commercial, but we'd have to come back on a military plane and then be quarantined and checked and tested going in and out. And that pretty much was that way until about summer, late summer, 2022. Um, but I didn't stop wearing a mask and we still had COVID rules until I, when I left in May of 23. From the military perspective, living off base, there was never a point where the Navy went, Hey, all of our personnel, all of our sailors, everybody's coming back and we're putting you on base. There's just not enough room. You got to stay living off base. Um, combination of both. Um, also for the base that was on the Marine Corps base, if you were a certain rank, you were allowed to live off base, which I was. And um, the reality is, is that we pay more as Americans to live in places off base than the Japanese do. So we're helping stimulating their economy. And as long as we're minding the rules, but if you have to think about it, we stand out. I mean, I have blonde hair, blue eyes. So I'm pretty much a flash at where I go. Um, 
they know who's following the rules and who's not. And they can easily let people know because unfortunately we did have some Americans who were not following the rules. And Japan's mindset is that if one person doesn't follow the rules, everyone pays the price. And that was the case, unfortunately, that happened several times when I was there. Any desire or opportunities? Because like I said, in your book, you talk about being stationed in Italy and Japan. The, and you're currently in San Diego now, but no desire or opportunity to go to San Antonio? Um, right now, San Antonio only allows for one person to be there at a oh, time for Navy. That and spot's locked down. <laughs> that spot is locked down. Yes. One of my current colleague, he was actually a year behind me. He is the residency program director. He's doing an amazing job. He retires and the person replacing him is another colleague of mine that's going there. Maybe one day that'll be a spot for me. But right now I really have um, my eyes set on just being near home. This is my I just celebrated my first Christmas in seven years with my family and Thanksgiving. And so it's really nice to be in the same time zone, the same country, <laughs> let alone the same state or the same coast as a lot of my family. So I really want to enjoy that for a few years and then we'll see what happens next. I have a couple ideas of where I could go next, but I think it just depends on promotion and rank and what happens in the next year or two. Not to put you on the spot, but what are you thinking as far as the duration of your career? Um, I would love to make Hatton. Um, no one in my family has ever done it. And so for me to be one of the, I should, I take the back. My uncle's made captain in the Coast Guard, um, but no Navy captains, I should say. I would love to um, finish my tour that way. And one of the reasons why, one of the main reasons why is there's a couple jobs in the Navy required to be that rank. And one of them is a career corpse planner, which is basically like that career counselor that told me no, but except I would learn ways to say yes. Because very often in my career, and I think this is true in this industry, is that sometimes you need people to believe in you before you're able to believe in yourself. And I've had a lot of people believe in me along the way when I had doubts, and I'm so grateful for that. So that's one job I'd love to do. That That is in Falls Church, Virginia. That's in the D.C. area. I would love to do another tour in Italy if the um, opportunity allows it. So maybe 2026, we'll see. It just really depends. And um, we'll see. We'll see. Japan was great, and I really enjoyed it. But now that I've done two tours, I feel like I've gotten my my bucket really full there of what to do. And as my uh, dental assistants told me, sensei, you've seen more of my country than I have. So I feel like I've definitely exhausted all my traveling over there. Do you work with the indigenous civilian staff as mm -hmm. far as assistance? Yes, I did in Japan. And then in Sicily, we had some, they were called local nationals, but we didn't have any that were dental assistants when I was stationed in Sicily. But I think it really just depends on the command and the climate and who's there. Um, just like we have government um, servants, you know, people that are civilians here in the States, we do have it overseas, it, but it just really depends. But I had some wonderful people that I worked in Sicily. I think there was a couple families where like all the siblings worked at different parts of the hospital. And it was really neat because then when you were there and you get to know them and you also learn a little bit of the language, um, you don't just feel like you're an active duty member, you're a guest in someone's country, but you're actually now part of the community. And that's something that I really value most being stationed overseas. For those watching, video seeing you sitting there in the sash yes let's transition to talking about you and pageantry beauty pageantry oh my goodness yes uh, and as we talked about before we started so miss america is just crowned and she's a u.s air force pilot you're a navy commander but not a lot of military history in the sense of active military and big scale pageantry you're you're definitely in the minority we are, and we'd, we'd love to change that. So if anyone's interested in doing, again, reach out to me. I will steer you in the right direction to do so.
but you didn't start competing when you, you st- actually, you started competing before you were active duty, correct? Correct. I did uh, a couple pageants. I did two or three pageants before I started, but I was very late. I, I was actually even too old to do Miss America with their former age requirements. They've actually recently upped their age requirement. I think it's either 29 or 30. When I started competing, I was 24, which was their age cutoff. And I got into it as a complete dare from some jerk in my dental school who told me I couldn't do it. So I had to prove him wrong. And then I got first runner up for Miss Nevada. And three years later, I won. But, you know, you're right. There isn't a lot of women. So a former Miss USA is an Army National Guard. Um, There is Kelly Sabracci. She has a podcast uh, known as Misunderstood. And she's competed quite a bit in pageantry. She's never won a title, but she's gotten very close as a first runner up. And um, I've competed and I've done other systems where I've just I've been very fortunate to have a lot of success. But one thing that I have learned in my journey is that every duty station I go to, there's three people that become instantly my best friends. They are my public affairs, my JAGs or lawyers, for those who are not familiar with that term, and my IT guys. And the reason I become very good friends with all three of those people is that I know that when I'm going to let my commanding officer know, because it's good to have good you know, communication and keep those lines always open what I'm about to do. I also want them to let them know that I understand instructions and guidances and have them covered. And by covering with the three people that they most likely are going to go to already and have those relationships already built in place will not only help me be able to do the things I want to do, but also do so for a positive light for the military. And that's what I've done. Even my current command, I actually have what's called an off-duty employment package with this current title, because even though I don't get actually a paycheck, you know, similar to like me moonlighting is worth it on this, I do get certain things paid for, such as plane tickets or personal training or certain things that would be of monetary value. And it's something that gets turned in every month. So that way, in case anyone ever gets curious about what I'm doing, um, it really just shows that, you know, all the T's are crossed, all the I's are dotted. So with the current sash you're wearing now, that's your current reign. Which which pageant was that? It's with the United States of America system. And I won Miss California back in November. And I'll make sure to provide the information for you, for your audience. And what um, will happen next is I'll compete in nationals in San Antonio in July for the national title. So a lot of preparation. So I would tell your listeners I'm in better shape for that than any military physical fitness test. And I am drilled beyond any high stakes talk that you might have to do or brief because this one involves interviews with judges and it's round robin. So they have you three minutes each. So you never know what they're going to ask you, but you got to be prepared and you got to be confident to handle anything that comes your way. Never having been in a beauty pageant. I know that's <laughs> shocking to believe. Yes. Because I, I would just run away with it. Yes. But I guess where I first want to go with it is, is there a pageant season and or are they always occurring or is there like a specific time of the year where you have to kind of like any other performer or so you, you mentioned I'm prepared. So where there's a period where you're ramping up for the season and then you kind of have a down season. Absolutely. I would tell you that is true with any competitive sport. You need to make sure to give your body some rest. So I would say a lot of pageants do occur in the summer as far as national pageants, but because of conflicts and scheduling in different countries, I have seen some of them shift their timeline. Some of these, so Miss America is usually always in January. Um, Miss USA has kind of fluctuated their timeline across. So, and Miss United States usually has their summer. So majority of them are in the summer. Um, One thing I would tell you as far as ramping up is usually about six weeks out. I'm now probably going to do eight weeks out is really where I get very more, more in tune, very, very focused and cutting out any sort of sugar, any sort of alcohol from my diet. 
I get really streamlined, but I'm always preparing. So every week, so even last night, I was submitting um, different things to organization, different requirements I get organized. And the reason I do that is that, you know, everything ebbs and flows. We all have things with our jobs that are going to take precedent. And we all of us have other jobs, just like Miss America. She is an army officer. She's studying. She's going to school. It's not finals every week, but there are certain times where things are going to take more precedent. And I would say my season is really in the summer and then in the fall if it's for a state competition. Well, and for those who have never been involved in it, that's where my next question is. So like the Air Force captain, who's a fighter pilot, like you, who's an orthodontist in the Navy, mm-hmm. a very specialized career. How does the the military allow you to balance the time demands to prepare and compete? Well, what I would tell you is um, you get really good at managing your time. I wake up at 4, 4.30 in the morning so I can get a workout in. And, you know, some of the things I do take leave for some of them, I, that's, that's what I do. People may take leave to go to their kid's soccer game. I take leave to do an appearance or to juggle things and you pick and choose, you know, you, you can do it all. You just can't do it all at once. And so for me, you know, when I was in residency, I really didn't compete in pageants, except I did what I found a way was to do my dissertation with pageant women. And I looked at a system, Miss Texas, that I was able to compete on a holiday weekend. And again, you know, the three big things, and, and I got a shout out to Kelly Sabracci on this because she is spot on this, is that you have to have great job performance, hands down. You are a Naval officer first or an Air Force officer, fill in the blank first. Secondly, you have to show good communication with your command. So that way they know exactly what's going on. It's always better to over communicate than under communicate. And then three, you know, having a plan in place. We all get the same 24 hours a day, but anyone who I meet who is able to do the things that they want to do is very structured in their day and they're, they're very intentional about their day. And so it's really finding ways to put things in your life that are going to help you succeed and taking out the things that don't. And that's something that I've really um, sought after doing and asking for help and keep asking for it until you get it. So I have a personal trainer. It's actually the same one as Madison's trainer that I work out with. And we work out together at five o'clock in the morning. Now, occasionally in Japan, I did work out with him at 4 a.m. in the morning <laughs> or 3.30 in the morning because of the time zone change. That was the only time we can make it work. So guess what? That means I took a power nap during lunch. You know, you find a way to make it work. It just depends on how bad you want it. But from the other side of it, have you been in a position where You've ramped up your training, your preparation, you're getting close to or or even just about to compete and the needs of the military said you're not going to be able to. Has that ever? That I am very lucky, knock on wood, that has not happened to me, but I have taken breaks in pageantry. So, for example, my first year and a half in residency, I did not compete in any sort of pageant. I may have given up a pageant title or was looking at something to do, but I did not compete. Um, after I gave up Miss Galaxy, I did not compete for four years. So there was definitely periods in my life where I've taken a break or I realized that certain things required my focus. Um, and, and during that, that was when I got my board certification for orthodontics. Um, and that also, you know, saying yes to one thing means often you have to say no to something else. There are certain organizations I would love to do leadership jobs, certain nonprofits, but because of my job with the Navy and the current jobs that I have right now, right now I have three jobs at my current command. I can't do those and do some leadership stuff on the side with some other organizations I'm very passionate about. And that's something hard to do. It is very hard to say no when you want to say yes. But as an adult, you're going to realize that if you cannot give the jobs that you have on your plate 110% or you're only giving them half, then you're really not, you're really not fulfilling what you're asked to do in the first place. I and are, are most of the pageant organizations pretty understanding 
when they've got a winner who is active military to work around your military schedule? They, for the most part, are. I mean, I think when I when I competed for California, they wanted to know, you know, what the Navy's thoughts were on it. Um, and the fact was that, you know, I actually got permission to go compete by my chain of command. I actually greased those wheels before I even got there. And then also, you know, the requirements of the system was that we would do one appearance a month and one post a week. So my type A personality has already drafted that all out till April, even before the year even started. And I think that's what they're looking for. They're looking for someone who is not only well-spoken, but someone who's has good intention in mind and is already looking at ways of executing that. Same thing with going to nationals. I'm already looking at sponsors to bring there to help grow the organization. And that's what they're looking for. They're looking for people who are on a mission, but who also are able to elegantly speak and articulate what their organization is about and hopefully bring more people. That's one of my goals. I would love to bring more military women to pageantry. I am a better naval officer because of pageantry, of learning how to speak better, write better, handle really tough situations that very often as leaders, we don't get that experience until like we're actually in it. And it would be so great to have something that helped us prepared for that. On the flip side of that though, does the military use you having won pageantries to their advantage? Absolutely. And they don't always tell me when they do it. <laughs> That's the funny part. Um, yes, I actually got a NAM, a Navy Achievement Medal from recruiters for helping them recruit meet their numbers so early in the year. I have uh, had situations where I was on Armed Forces Network, which is a network overseas that you will definitely see. And they've had different conferences called STEM, where they've actually asked me to come because they wanted someone who could kind of show what it's like to be kind of in both worlds. So it's definitely gone both ways. But, you know, honestly, I'm grateful that if I can do that, because I do want to show more men and women that you don't have to give up who you are to be who you want to be. And I think that's something that is lost and something that I've seen in my career with people from my father's generation that they you could only do the military and you can't do anything else. And if you want to do anything else, you have to wait for retirement where it's more shifting that mindset of like, hey, what if some of these passion projects, these things that I'm learning, these skills, guess what? The military gets to capitalize on this. How is that a benefit for them? And I think showing that bridge with my various bosses along the way has really helped me be successful and help elevate um, me in certain aspects of my career. Well, what's really cool when you think about it is if you go back, not far, but 50 or 60 years ago, women were just fighting for a place in the military That's to be right. accepted in the military. And now to a complete nth degree, you're not only serving at the highest level, you're also competing as like you said, in something that's away from the military today that would probably would have never even been allowed. It's very, very true. It's very, very true. Yeah. It's definitely revolutionizing the military because they're seeing that if they don't change, they're going to become obsolete. Our numbers are down right now. I think the Marine Corps is the only one that doesn't have their numbers down. And if we need to recruit the best and the brightest out there, we need to find ways to get to them. And this is definitely one way that can be possible. Are there any pageants that are directly affiliated with the military? There isn't any pageants directly affiliated that are like sponsored by the military, but there is a military pageant. Um, and they and I say pageant loosely because they don't like being called a pageant, but it's called Miss Veteran America. And I did compete with it once. Uh, actually, it was two years ago. Yeah, two years ago. And it's an organization that raises money for um, female homeless veterans and their and their families. And so that um, that organization was actually, you know, even there was a crown and banner and we had evening gowns. It was actually not part of the competition. It was more of how well we knew our military history. So I learned everything back to the revolutionary <laughs> war. And I, um, 
Well, you got family records. I got family <laughs> records, but yeah, but I had to know like facts that I never even knew that were about, you know, the first female chief or the first female that served, but, you know, took over their husband's role because their husband died in battle and they wanted to serve. Um, it was based on that talent advocacy, you know, how well we could help fundraise for this organization. And, you know, ultimately I was grateful to get the top 10. I won the GI Jane contest because I did as many pushups on stage. So no swimsuit, but the pushups were there with the drill sergeants. And it was a lot of fun, um, but that's the only system I've come across that has any sort of military ties. And I say that very loosely. And did you say that competing in the pageants is what caused you to kind of do the research back into your family service? This this particular pageant had me do more, um, take a deeper dive because I wanted to make sure that, see, you know, I knew how far we went back, but I didn't know all the people along the way. And I really wanted to understand the the family tree, the lineage that that had come before me. Anything really interesting or unique that stood, that jumped out while you're doing that research? Um, so we have some people that were bouncing back and forth between Canada and the U.S. on my father's side. Um, I definitely learned about some family scandals, but I probably, I don't know the whole story to go through here, but I just learned that I have some cousins that stem from when my grandmother's, uh, brother had an affair overseas in Austria during world war one. I. I mean, down the line, but you know, family's family, you can always pick right. your family. And you know, at the end of the day, um, when you have reunions, you know, and I meet like the third or fourth person down the line, it's like, come on, they didn't have anything to do with it, but it definitely gives a good chuckle and rise to be like, gosh our great 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 grandparents they were so scandalous <laughs> so. switching over to the book when did the the desire or the impetus come to want to write a book it actually came to me in italy before the pandemic so i was doing a lot of podca- podcasts with another title that i recently run miss international or international miss and i had a lot of people tell me hey you know you have such a fascinating story you need to put in a book And I was really intimidated by it. I was really, I was like, gosh, like I'm active duty. I'm going to have to wait till I retire. And then I met an emergency medicine physician doctor at my hospital. And he was telling me about one of his colleagues, also pilot churn doctor had published a book while on active duty. And I was like, what? We can do this. And that author, um, Jason Valedo, he has an incredible book that's out. um, And it's a very self-motive. It was a very motivational book. And I just thought, you know, if he could do it, I should be able to do it. And so I started researching on how to do it, the process to go through. And I'll be honest, my chain of command in both Italy and Japan had no clue how to do the process. But for your audience, how it works is that if you're going to publish anything, and it depends if it's an article, if you're doing a film or a book, it goes to different places. So West Coast is pretty much like your film, your commercials. East Coast is going to be your publications. Now, if I'm publication into a medical journal, that's very, very different than doing an actual book. So for a book, it went to the Office of Pre-Publication Security Review. And before it went, Jason was really great and told me, he's like, hey, get an editor, get, have someone to help you go through. He's like, it took my book three months to get through and it was polished and pristine. You can only imagine what it's not like. Now, I was only technically having to go through them because I was mentioning the military. If I wasn't mentioning anything in the military, let's say I did a cookbook. Technically doesn't have to go through there. But what from I've learned, it's always better to have kind of that stamp of approval because that piece of paperwork has definitely been shown to many commends since then. And in my journey of writing this book, I learned that writing is like an exercise. You have to do it every day and you can do a little bit. And so in Italy, you know, then now being locked down with the pandemic, I felt like, okay, when else in my life I'm going to have this time to put this into words? 
And so I started doing that. And then I worked with an amazing book coach who was not familiar with the military, not familiar with me or pageantry or the Navy to make sure it was very concise and it made sense to my audience. And so she was incredible. She actually lives here in the Temecula area and she's a guru with with nonfiction books. And so she was really uh, one of the key people that helped make my book come to life. You have plans for more books? I actually do. And that's one of the things I'm saying no to right now that I'm putting on hold. I would love to do a children's book. Um, you know, being a orthodontist where I got to treat children for many years and now I'm treating bigger kids called adults. I realize that that is something that I would love to do and something I'd love to pass on to my nephews and my godchildren. So maybe 2025, but now for 2024, I got a lot on my plate right now. One of the other interesting things that you got to do is to do a TED talk. Yes. How did that come about? So when I was doing the podcasting, doing the book, and I actually did a keynote talk for the American, well, one of the many, they had many keynote talks for the American Association of Orthodontists. Um, It definitely garnered some attention online. And one of the people that um, it garnered the attention of was a TED talk based in Youngston, Ohio. Uh, Greg Smith. And partially I have to think for it is, you know, the Ted talk world as vast as Ted talks can be, it is a very small community. And one of the people that I worked with Kimberly will, who's amazing. If I tell anyone, if you're ever doing a, a high stakes talk, it does not really necessarily have to be a Ted talk, go to her. She is amazing. She will change the way you speak um, with someone that I utilize. And through her, that's how I got to be a Ted talk speaker. So we hear the term TED Talk. Is that a specific organization? And do they dictate where you're going to do the speech? So TED actually has their main headquarters. I believe it's Vancouver. And then there's different TEDx events. And so X um, TEDx is for events and they could be salon, university. But in order to do it, um, there's definitely each each organization does it has to go through some stipulations. And I, I'm not familiar with all the things they go through. But I do know that you have to make sure the talk has never been done. You have to apply for it, interview for it, and it has to fit fit certain criteria. So, for example, um, the organizer wanted to make sure our talks were under 12 minutes. We had to have slides. We had to be limited. We were limited to the red circle as if you were going to do any sort of props or action with it. And we also had to be prepared to do it in a certain location. It was in March of last year and you had to be able to do it twice because he wanted to be able to record it twice just in case something happened. So there was definitely a lot of work and preparation. I mean, it was fully memorized that you have to do it in and you had to change. So I took a 90 minute talk and I condensed it down to 11 minutes. And that had to be hard. It was very challenging. I remember cutting and constantly cutting. And the other thing was I talk naturally fast as you can, if you haven't picked up. And so to uh, slow down my, um, my speaking cadence, to a way that was understandable to the audience was definitely something <laughs> I spent hours and hours on. I mean, this was something I prepared months and months and months for, but I was thrilled to do it. I was super excited and you can find it um, on YouTube on Ted.com. If you actually put in my name is, is it something where they put it all on you to handle all of your preparation for the speech or do they provide you with mentors or advisors from their organization about what the finished product needs to be and look like? It really depends on who's running it. Um, it's almost like different pageants. I get some help and other pageants. It's like they're very hands off, kind of letting you be more free. This one, um, he was much more hands on. And it was, I really loved it about Greg. And I would love to do another one for him if the opportunity allows, because I found he took very good care of his speakers. And some of it he learned just from over the years. But 
He was very strategic in the coaches that he picked for them to work with on the day of. Like they had a chiropractor, they had a masseuse. I didn't utilize them until after my talk. <laughs> I didn't want to be too relaxed, but I was just incredibly, incredible grateful. I mean, it was very clear, you know, not his first rodeo. He was very good at running things. There was very little things that I had to focus on outside of arriving there that um, really helped me bring my best foot forward doing it. You've provided some great advice for those trying to balance doing a lot of things while still being active in the military. Yes. You you wrote a, a great account of your life experiences and all the little turns that your life has taken in your book. I, I recommend people read Commander to Crown. Thank you. In finishing up, any last pieces of advice, especially for those who might still be active and, and have an interest, whether it be in dentistry or pageantry? You know, if you are interested in any of those fields, feel free to reach out to me. I know that can be quite intimidating and going down to that path can be quite daunting, but you only need to find one person who really knows the path to help get you there. And that has been true in so many times in my career. If you're not getting the answer you need or or someone says, I don't know, keep asking. So that would be one piece of advice I would say. And then also have a plan of what, you know, what does your life want to look like in the next three months, six months, nine months? Um, for me, yes, I have my year already full, year very, very planned, very full, but I'm also thinking about, okay, what are the three big things I want to accomplish this year? And, you know, we, I may have other things I want to accomplish, but it's really prioritizing those things and finding ways in your schedule to insert them in. And maybe that's giving up watching your favorite Netflix show and saving it for only when you fly, which is what I do. Or perhaps it's giving yourself, um, like for me, I was sharing with you, I woke up early this morning so I could go take care of some casework that I had to work on prior to coming here and just finding ways to make it work in your schedule so you get to say yes that make you excited and passionate about like doing podcast shows like this. I appreciate you watching. But before you go, if you like the video, please hit that subscribe button. Also, any comments are appreciated. Thank you.